0: Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host,
1: Ingrid Cochran. If you don't understand history, you're never going to understand trauma. And if you don't understand trauma, you're never going to understand history. And this is part of our problem as a field. We don't like to, once we become adult professionals, we don't like to go into a group, uh, uh, anything and say, I'm I'm a completely naive. I know nothing at all. I want to learn. We always, it's hard to be the, on one hand, be the expert, but then in another field, be the novice. But if we don't get comfortable with that, we're never going to push the field forward. And that's so the, there's some really exciting and important things that are happening in the area of historical trauma. And, and I'm happy to see this ha- move forward, but it's it's it, part of what we, we are at the infancy at, at, as a sort of a body of scholarly thinkers in trauma and traumatology. Um, and I, and I hope that we give, the social and the historical perspectives about trauma as much attention and funding and support as we do to the people that are studying the effects of a drug on PTSD or the effects of some other very simple, you know, treatment thing that's 20, 20 sessions. And I can take care of 20 years of maltreatment and chaos and threat. You know, we, we, We are living in systems that are fundamentally colonial in structure. And colonialism basically means I'm going to come into your space, your place, and I'm going to take your things. And I'm going to I'm going to make you feel privileged if I give you a little bit of it back. I'm going to make you feel great if we give a little bit of, of this back. And so every one of our systems is like this. One of the most white male hierarchies of dominance that still persists in the United States is academics. Make no mistake about it. I mean, academics is probably as uh, sort of racist, misogynist, power hungry as child welfare, mental health, health, all but again all those systems as we know you can just look at the data they have inherently marginalizing and racist practices and we just have to we just have to know our the real history we have to know our real history and we have to look at where these systems came from and then here's the hard part we have to somehow figure out how to get people to share power It's a very hard thing to do. People with power don't want to share power. People with power want to push you away. They want to, first of all, they ignore you. There's a three-step thing. They ignore you, and then once they can't ignore you, then they attack you. They'll attack your your research. They'll attack you personally. They'll attack you, attack, attack, attack. And then when that doesn't work, then they'll co-opt the idea and and push you back out to the bottom of the power. power. so I, those are some of my thoughts about this. It's a re, it's, it, it is not only an important, it is the centrally important question in traumatology is where do these structures come from? Where do these systems come from? Because it's sort of like the very system that, that is supposed to be supporting the study of our field is the system that we need to take apart. There's sort of this weird Heisenberg uncertainty principle that, you know, by the very act of looking at this, you know, it, but see, I can talk this way because I'm an old white man with power. If you are a young black girl in academics with power and you talk like this in your system, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get marginalized. You'll never get tenure. You'll have to go get a job doing something else. That's our system and we have to look at it squarely and we have to, you know, try to change it. Anyway, I feel like I'm, I hope I don't, <laughs> I hope the numbers don't go from 1,000 down to like 12. <laughs> it's like, oh, this guy's crazy.
2: Now, thank you so much for providing that that context. That really helps to kind of frame the next question which is as a movement, what does what does it even look like to address historical trauma in a real way. Uh, Obviously, we're beginning the process of raising awareness, Um, but we have both, well, not just, again, systems, yes, but community work, the individual space. Um, What's kind of the next space for our movement when it comes to historical trauma to address it in a real way? a good example, you brought up how, you know, there's a lack of, well, there's a resistance to power sharing. Um, How does the work get done um, when we are unable to um, have a space where everybody's kind of on an equal playing field to get the work done? Um, This really plays out for our audience who are, you know, mostly volunteering or even, you know, getting paid within um, organizations, nonprofits, to do the work and often hit up on the systems, trying to get the work done, the bureaucracy or uh, the powers that be, um, the many ways that the system really impacts actually getting the work done. Um, What are your thoughts on that?
1: I have a lot of thoughts on that. And then actually the topic of my next book is about the systemic issues. You know, how, how systems grow up and then how the system itself has sort of this biological quality to maintain equilibrium. All biological systems really have this, I mean, this is a huge. Once you learn stress 101, right? You know, you have these homeostats, you have a, you, you, you get above a certain range of activity. You, then there are mechanisms that get you back to equilibrium. Or if you get too below this homeostat, you get mechanisms to push you back. All the systems that we've created, have these and it's very hard to change them and so those of you who do individual therapy you know how hard it can be to change one person right and and the key to changing that person in the end i'm going to just sum it up is really making them feel relationally safe if they feel relationally safe with you as a teacher as a parent as a coach as a therapist then then there's they're open for taking in new information and for changing and growing. And so this is one of the, you know, this is a hard part, hard process. People can change, but it takes time and it takes relational connectedness. Systems don't have that same mechanism, right? Systems are harder to change because when they feel threatened, they, sort of collapse on themselves, they entrench in their old beliefs and then they push back. And we're experienced, we've seen, we, you can see evidence of this all throughout what's been happening in the last 10 years. And so I've always found it e- easiest uh, to think about systemic change. And I'm still trying to figure it out is that when the system is, in, is resource depleted, resource challenged, You are not going to successfully bring in a new program or sort of have a PowerPoint presentation that's going to make the system change. In the end, what changes the systems, from what I can tell, is when the people in the system begin to be repopulated, there's turnover in the system, and the people that are comprising the system know how to tell the truth, and they know the truth and then they start to get to a certain point of influence and power in the system, and then they can start to make some changes. And we, we've seen examples of this, but let me give you the tiniest little example. From, again, from my experience, I mentioned the fact that I was in developmental, in, interested in brain development and early life experiences. And there, 20 years ago, there was a public engagement campaign because Rob Reiner, he learned a little bit about how important, you know, that the brain develops so rapidly early in life, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, why don't I know this? Everybody should know this. So he decided to have this public engagement campaign. And he went around and he got the governors to buy on. And he got some famous people to kind of come along. And, and he did tried to push all this information. And the biggest resistors were people in medicine. The biggest resistors were the, were the established experts in development. Who were basically we pointed out as a field that listen, you're not teaching this stuff, you know, you're, you're not teaching medical students about this, you're not teaching the developmental psychologists about this, you're not learning about this. And and so there's a huge pushback. Exactly what I that that three-step process happened. First of all, they ignored it, and once and they've been ignoring these things for 10, 15 years, and then because of Rob Reiner and all this celebrity, they couldn't ignore it anymore. So then they basically couldn't attack them. So they attacked uh, sort of around the margins and then they co-opted it. So some of the same people who were the biggest opponents of that politically are now some of the biggest proponents of this. And the same thing happened with PTSD, that some of the biggest people who said, oh, PTSD really doesn't exist. Once there was money in it 20 years later, all of a sudden, they're at the top of the dominance hierarchy and the funding hierarchy of the national centers for PTSD. It's just that's just the way this stuff works. But the hard part for me, the heartbreaking part for me, is before these big changes happen, they take thirty years. Money is Kevin. Just type that. It's about money. It is about money and and power. And money is very yoked to. to to power. But the interesting thing about this is that truth always wins. You know, I mean, and it, the sad reality, it might take many generations for it to win, but ultimately truth wins and the battles and the energy and the effort that people put in now about fighting racism and fighting misogyny and fighting, you know, all these other things, it feels sometimes like it doesn't stick, but it's going to stick. And you, and if you look at the global trajectory of a humankind, there's a lot of bad stuff that's happened along the way, but the the trend is up. The trend is up, and and it takes individuals to tell the truth and learn the truth. This is why I get so uh, upset about. I mean, I, I mean, I love history. That's so how I even as a kid I wanted to be a history teacher. I can't figure out for the world of me why people would be upset about learning their real history. Why, why, let's tell the truth. Why, why shouldn't somebody, why shouldn't we know the history? Why shouldn't we know that there was an intentional effort to uh, destroy the Aboriginal people and then after we couldn't destroy them as peoples to destroy their culture, that happened in Australia, it happened in Canada, it happened in, you know, the U.S. I mean, it literally completely happened in Mexico. I mean, there's entire, in, entire sort of tribes that are completely obliterated off the planet by the colonization, by the Spaniards. I mean, we need to tell the truth. How do we get here? What happened to us? That we're like this. What what happened to us now that we can actually you know say that it's okay that a 18-year-old kid can get an automatic weapon that can throw more lead in two minutes than a brigade of civil war soldiers in you know in a three-hour battle?
3: Anyway. Well, I mean, I think I just heard a brand new book for you called What Happened to Us. And I would love to suggest Ingrid as the co-author of that book. But I mean, I do think because and what you've said hits home and and you know that I spent a long time in education and there is this there's this effort right now of eliminating any talking of race or any talk of historical trauma or any talk of our country's history um, matter of fact, even in the county I live, there's a platform now that's lifting people because they're saying they're going to make sure it goes away. There's so much that's going on that that is trying to go through that three-step process. But but I, I continue to remain hopeful, right? I continue to remain that we can move forward. So how can we intentionally heal historical trauma as individuals or communities or institutions? And even as a society, we've got a a large group of amazing people on this webinar, but to me, I, I wanna remain in that idea of what can we do um, to begin to heal what has happened to us?
1: Yeah, I I think there are a lot of things that individuals can do. And I think I'm, I'm actually a big fan of um, I, I measure twice, cut once. Um, I, I was lucky enough many, many years ago to go to I was up in the Society for Neuroscience meetings and someone who is had a Nobel laureate in uh, the neurosciences. And I was at a table with him and about 12 other people. Cause I, I was just I was a young punk and I was his my mentor had been mentored by him. So it was I was like I was like his academic grandchild. And so somebody asked him a question and said, you know, what what do you think is the most important thing to learn when you're a young scientist? And the bottom line was basically he'd summarized it, I'll summarize it by basically saying that it's much better to take an entire year to think about the right experiment than to do 50 experiments a year. Uh, and, And because the key is to ask the right question to get a good answer as opposed to getting a good you know, statistically significant answer to bad questions. And I think that, again, the academic, the standards of our current academic model will reward the person who has 50 good answers to bad questions that are published than the one person that has a good answer to a good question So here's what I think we need to do, actually. I think we need to think more. I mean, I hate to say it. I I, I think sometimes what happens in a movement is that there's a lot of emotional energy and people kind of go in all kinds of different directions. And then that energy dissipates. It's sort of like a big campfire. And then then all you have is sort of the smoldering cinders. And, you know, you really can't cook. on, on the Flames don't cook very well. Cinders cook. So I, I think that we need, I, I think we have to have, continue to have dialogue. I think we need to listen to people more. I think we need to go out and spend time listening to the people who are, we are supposed to be healing and rescuing and better understand their experience and include them in the problem solving process. They have better ideas than we do. Most of the time. I mean, I have to say some of the, I've, I can't believe some of the stupid ideas that have come out of academics and, you know, some of the things I've been part of. And I, I just like, Oh my God, I can't believe we're going to do this. I mean, if I had a if I had a couple of scotches, I'd tell you a few examples, but I'm not going to do that right now. Um, but, you know, I, I really think we need to sh- start to understand that community and connectedness are at the core of any of our solutions. And there will be nuances, and there'll be differences, and there'll be interesting things. And access to certain, you know, evidence-based, you know, techniques can be great. But you know, you can do all the evidence-based things if you don't have somebody connected to you know. If a person's not connected, um, that one hour of evidence-based intervention a week is not going to is not going to cut it. So I think we need, as a field to encourage our academics, to spend time with people in the community. And, and then we also need to educate people in our community. I mean, because honestly it, it, there are lots of people out there that want to do well, but they don't know as much as we do, right? They may not understand that I know you're well-intended, but you don't have to ask your traumatized kid every, every day you know, did you have a dream about mom last night? Did you have a dream about mom last night? You know, that we need to basically bring up the broad capacity of our society about these fundamental um, pieces of information about healthy developmental experiences, high quality care and early childhood, you know, the, the the biggest bang for your buck in being present with an infant and, and all the kinds of things that can lead to an increased probability of physical, social, and mental health. And I think that that's kind of what we're doing. I mean, I think that the field's doing that. I think that, you know, the fact that there's even an event like this is, is evidence that that's happening. So I think that that's a very positive thing. And then after that, once people learn a little bit about this, what we've seen, that has been amazing. We've seen this both in context of our, community-based work, but mostly within our education-based work, where we can go into a school and help educators understand some of these things, just a tiny little bit of information about state-dependent functioning and and, regulation, and they'll come up with a dozen really good ideas about how to change the classroom. And then the outcomes are stunning. I mean, some, some of the outcomes that we've seen have been almost too good to believe. Um, but they, we've seen them, and they've been sustained over multiple years. And so, we have a lot of re- we. We are very hopeful as an organization, but we're also, you know, you know. I, I think part of our dilemma is that we've got. Sometimes we have enthusiasm that's not coupled with um, content, and sometimes we have content that's not coupled with enthusiasm. You know, I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of people that are have done wonderful work, but they're terrible communicators, uh, or, or people that have really high quality uh, programs. And we, there's very few people that have figured out the the problem of taking a very promising practice or program and exporting it. And I think that. Once we get better at that learn a little bit more about that, I think that that we'll see more uptake. But the key to that, in my opinion, is that successful dissemination of of high quality work depends upon the people, not upon the notebook that has all the job descriptions and all that kind of stuff. And Matthew, as a principal, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Every elementary school principal has the same job descriptions all across the country. And not every elementary school works like Matthew's schoolwork uh, because you had good, you selected the right people, you supported them, and you helped them do the best that they could. And I, I, I still think that we tend to um, minimize the power of that person, the importance of that person. So anyway, again, I'm rambling. I'm off on a tangent, sorry.
2: No, no, that's what we're here for. <laughs> um, thank you so much. we are here for my for, tangents. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> thank you so much for, um, for engaging with us and being present for our audience. Um, we have uh, a lot of audience questions that have come in. So we're going to kind of uh, move into this space where we are um, taking in audience questions. Um, I see some have raised their hand, so I want to ask them to use the Q and a um, option so that we can so that we can keep track of all of your questions uh, as opposed to raised hands. And there was one question that I think stood out to me already from Alejandra and I hope I'm saying your name right, but um, they're asking really uh, something that is, very relevant in our in our conversations around historical trauma and often gets left out. Um, we tend to be very focused on kind of like the deficit view of people of color um, and really how do we kind of change this narrative and really focus on again kind of how we got here. And so what does it look like to talk about white trauma? And um, Alejandra's question was you know, you have children in the past who have um, been made to watch lynchings or have been fed stories from their parents through generations about why we don't trust indigenous people or um, that African-Americans and Latinos are um, criminals and that you should be fearful of them. And, you know, things of this nature, Um, what does it look like to address kind of, you know, white intergenerational or or the historical trauma of being racist or a lack of empathy towards people of color. Um, We're gonna talk a little bit about that in November when we look at kind of the Northeast, the historical trauma of the Northeast. But um, what is your take on that Um, from, I think it's Alejandro Trujillo. Again, I hope I'm not butchering your name.
1: Um, So I, again, there's a lot of, you know, if you read history Um, one of the things that you learn is that the greatest slavers in the world were the Vikings, and um, they were among the greatest slavers. There are lots of people that are great slavers. They're they're in the sort of the former Russian Baltic states, tremendous slavery, and most of those individuals were Caucasian or white. And if you look at, uh, you know, just in the history of the United States, that the there were four big waves of immigration from the UK or what we now call the UK over into the United States, and um, two of those were people that were basically oppressed and dirt poor and forced to leave the UK, and uh, so there are there are, I think, in any group there are elements of being uh, marginalized, excluded, at the bottom of a power differential, powerless, not belonging, and being traumatized. And what you can see though, is that over time, and again, I'll just sort of throw the example out that many people may be familiar with, but there were a lot of very, very dirt poor, starving Irish that came over to New York City. And they populated the, the urban areas of New York City, and created these toxic, toxic community environments where there's a tremendous amount of poverty, exploitation of the next wave of of Irish immigrants, and slowly but surely certain individuals amongst them rose up economically, got some power, and essentially using a whole variety of colonialistic practices that mimicked what had happened to them. I mean, I I don't want to sound too much like a shrink, but basically if you view this as groups, group by group by group, an oppressed group occasionally, not always, but frequently when they get to the point where they are now in a position of power will basically replicate the oppression on a different group of people that they marginalize and exploit. And, You know, I think that this is something, again, that that broadly speaking, if we understand these mechanisms, that groups tend to do this. I mean, we have a, if you back up, back way, way up, humankind only survived on this planet in the natural world by living in small hunter-gatherer groups. There was no way for us to basically sustain a group larger than 40 or 50 people, sustain them with enough calories because we couldn't we couldn't preserve meat and so before fire we, our groups were even smaller once we had fire we could preserve a little bit of calories but we had to follow the herds we had to follow the migrating herds and so gathering fishing all kinds of things to get calories we could only sustain small groups soon as, a, basically, cultivation and domestication, domestication of animals and cultivation came along. Human beings didn't have to move as much. They didn't have to be as migratory. So there were certain groups that were able to stay at a certain location. And they started to have this ability to play a role in commerce, you know, that these migrating peoples had these things to give. These migrating peoples had these things to give. They both come through where we live. We'll trade. And there was this sort of process of the development of, you know, humankind, the, w- the way we know it. But part of what happened is that instead of having a living group where there was 40 or 50 people, where there was what we call a distributed leadership model. A distributed leadership model was basically the natural model of leadership in a human living group. And most of our living groups were matriarchal. They, they were matriarchal because the, there was a matriarchal uh, s- sort of maintenance of the knowledge of the clan. And there were certain patriarchal elements too, but it was basically either matriarchal, dominant, or balanced. And when somebody was good at something, they would lead. And, went, and then when you weren't doing that task, somebody else would lead. So when you were in the village cooking, the leader was – somewhat different than when you were out hunting for an antelope. And so there was never this huge multi-layered dominance hierarchy. And that started to happen when more and more human beings lived together. And so people could start to accumulate po- money basically or power and create that start to the beginning of this dominance hierarchy. And a big part of it had to do with I'm bigger than you, I'm stronger than you, I'm going to take your stuff. What are you going to do about it? And so power and dominance basically went hand in hand with the creation of the original system. And from that point forward, all of the systems almost in human, in human existence have had that element of a structure. And, you know, if you think about, you know, feudal in, in, in Western Europe and in, during feudal times, it, you owned the people that worked your land. If you were the, you know, the, the, the head of the castle, you know, your little banner, you owned them. They were, they were property. And so if you sold your land, you sold all the people that were on the land.
0: Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past. On history, culture, and trauma, Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism, and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid
1: Cochran. Again, I think what we need to teach people about is true history all the way back and understand how we got to this point. And, and I also, now to your point about, you know, the recognition that you've been brought up with ideas that are just wrong. I think different people have managed that in different ways. I think about one third of the people that are confronted with something that challenges their worldview around their core values about what people, you know, have value what people don't, about one third of the people can change their perspectives. I think about one third of the people kind of back away from it. They don't feel comfortable with it. They wanna avoid it. And then one third of the people, they feel attacked. You're attacking my worldview. And so they get more entrenched. Now, this is interesting because it's the same sort of ratio of what happens with, if you take a bunch of pre-K kids and you bring a big surprise into the middle of the room, and a box and walk away, one third of the kids will rush over there and open it up and want to see what's in it. They're the early adopters for those of you who are interested in systemic change. And then one third of the kids will kind of go up cautiously and look over the shoulder of the kids that are opening the package and one third of the kids take a step back. And so that's, you know, it, it, part of the, the key to this, I think though, is, is fear the more people uh, feel threatened or fearful that something about them, their way of life, their worldview, their things that makes people collapse into this, into this stuff. And, you know, I, you know, you hear all kinds of interesting stories about people who, you know, they made made a bunch of movies about stuff like this. Oh, you know, I'm going to hang around with some black people. And all of a sudden that I'm, I realized that, you know, oh, gosh, black like people are normal, just like me. And let's go off and make a movie about it and get an Academy Award. And uh, Oh, by the way, you know, the Green Book movie story. Anyway, um, <laughs> I don't know. I think the best thing we need to do, once, once you know that you've been doing things the wrong way, we just need to stop teaching the wrong stuff. If we taught the right stuff, we wouldn't have to have this. It would, this would not be as big a problem. And if we also spent more time with people that are different from us, whether that time is screen time or book time or in person time, we need to spend time and recognize that diversity is not a weakness. Diversity is the strength of a people. No one person on the planet can do all the amazing things that a group of people can do. You know, different kinds of music, different kinds of cooking, different kinds of languages, different kinds of thinking. The, 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 our species, the power of our species is the diversity and the adaptability. And once we start saying that everybody should be the same, we're literally—that is a self-destructive cognition as a species. All right, I'm on. I went off on a tangent again. <laughs> Ingrid, looking at me like, well, "How in the hell did you get to that?" <laughs> that... Sorry, I'm sorry.
2: No, I appreciate it, Um, especially the big picture view around just human evolution. And we had a discussion with Dr. Sandy Bloom um, in the past, and it really is good to talk about the big picture and how we got here. And and really, it is connected to this power dynamic, and also just you know, and so much of it is our environment. We often do not talk about the role of the environment that we're living in. Um, this issues of scarcity, or what, how much food, or how little, or how much, you know, if there's abundance, or are we only, or we're we hoarding. All of this is environmental. We also need to think about how the environment impacts us as well. So, and going back to Alejandra's question, if we're going through a process of land theft and exploitation, of course, we have to create stories to support, and can, and so that our children will continue. We have to say that this group is different from us and dangerous or a threat um, for it to work, for it to you know, for it to transfer through generations so that our children will keep up that process. Um, I and so I appreciate the the big picture view, Dr. Perry, for sure. Um, Matthew, you said that there was another question that came through that you wanted to make sure that we addressed.
3: Yeah, I think there was one that that was addressed already, but what which was what Ingrid was just talking about, which is how do systems keep uh keep us at bay and i think you just described that well right and i think we see that playing out constantly in in multiple sectors on how the system continues to perpetuate these lies if you will about what happened and how land was acquired and how people came and how genocide occurred but we have a we have somebody um trish she's from northern ireland and i know in your in the book you Hey, is this trish my trish I don't know that Trish. I, I I Trish
1: Collins. I owe a drink to. Yes, it. it's your Trish <laughs> Collins. Uh,
3: hey so, Trish,
1: how you doing? <laughs> uh, this so, is an Irish whiskey, but it's.
3: I wish it was. <laughs> well, so you probably know Trish here, but I think she has a great question. In your book, you talk about multiple cultures around the globe. This isn't something that's particular to just our own culture here in the U.S. And she said. As you might already be aware that there is a traumatized nation and they're seeing this peace era of children who have transgenerational trauma and they're displaying symptoms of anxiety, uh, but have no actual story themselves. So how can Trish and the rest of us who see these things happening play out in our cultures, how can we best help the kids who are bearing the weight of this anxiety from past experiences yeah. culturally.
2: And, and that's just to a really add to that, I story. think that's a, a issue with African-American children that I've seen as well, that not having a story at this current time. And what does that look like? So thanks for that question, Tris.
1: Yeah, I think that, that's a really good question. And I, I wish that I had a, a good answer for it. Um, it's interesting. When I was first starting out uh, as a junior faculty member, um, one of my residents that I was coming through and training was from Syria and after we talked a little bit heard me talk about PTSD and he, he said listen I think everybody in my country has PTSD because they live with they live with fear about um, you know a neighbor could say that they were you know uh, not loyal to the regime and you know people had, would knock on their door at night and the kids would disappear. His brother uh, was walking home from school one day and a block away from a little bit of a protest. Uh, he got picked up and was gone for a couple of weeks. Then he came back. And um, so he said, everybody is on edge. Everybody is anxious. Everybody's dysregulated. And I, I've been thinking about that. In fact, many years ago I wrote an article with a professor of history at the University of Chicago, Richard Helley, who's now passed away, but he was an expert on uh, Russia and a certain period in Russia that they called the Dark Age, the Russian Dark Ages, which is basically a period in time when there was incredible oppression and violence permeated, unpredictable, oppressive violence. And the, the literature and the art that had been emerging from Russia was at a certain level. And then along came the dark ages of this oppression and community violence and pervasive oppressive violence and it plummeted. And then, so there was a, like 150 year period where there was just no creative content that came out of the population. And so I've been very interested in basically community climate because community climate creates it basically influences where your state of regulation is. And, and those of you who, if you read the book or, or have learned a little bit about uh, you know trauma 101, when people are dysregulated, the stress response system is hi- activated in a persistent way. One of the key things that happens is the cortex, the top part of the brain, you know, envision it as this upside down triangle, lower part of the brain, middle part of the brain, top part of the brain, dis- you get stressed the top part of your brain just starts to shut down a little bit. And so what happens is there's less abstract cognition. There's less uh, reflection on the past. There's less anticipation of the future. And what that means is people that are fearful are easy to lead. They become sheep-like. They become overly compliant. So terror is one of the most common mechanisms. Unpredictability, unpredictable terror is one of the most common mechanisms of controlling a large population. And so when that happens, though, these people are not going to be able to access lots of parts of their central nervous system that would have been normally involved in reflective cognition and creativity and and all the things that, that are most uniquely human about us that allow us to do these incredible things that we do as our creative species and so I keep thinking that even when there is a sort of a climate of oppression that within that if within your community if your community is impacted by war your community is impacted by community violence if you can create a little island of safety for your child for your developing child that's where this starts to change because pretty soon the kid who's got the who was raised with safety predictability in the home and there are enough relational connections to create and grow this this net of safety then they start to call emperor's new clothes on all the bullshit that's going on around them and once you do that that those regimes begin to crumble and so the key is If you start to, in your home, in your one-to-one opportunities, your home, your community of faith, your sports team, your school, you can create elements of consistency, predictability, nurturing, making kids feel like they belong, making them feel safe. That's the way to start the process. But it takes, you know, depending upon the degree of oppression and the intensity of oppression, which was pretty huge with slavery, right? I mean, think about slavery. You literally kidnap somebody, bring them to a different country. You, you, they're not allowed to you know, speak their language, worship their gods, practice any part of their culture. Families are spread apart intentionally, um, dehumanized in every way possible. And that goes on for generation after generation after generation. And then, boom, all of a sudden, we declare you untraumatized and free. Oh, that worked out. Uh, no, well, let's just keep traumatizing you and oppressing you, marginalizing you, just giving you essentially the majority of the, the Black population after slavery just moved to a slightly different form of slavery and, and for multiple generations continued to be exploited. And so I think that it takes time, multiple generations, for these little windows of these little family based starts in the family. And this did occur even during, you know, the worst times of, of slavery. There were these little pockets of resilience, of protection, of safety, of connection to beliefs, connection to family, connection to culture that helped people, you know, take advantage of this and the elements of resilience that we do have as a species and carry that forward. And then be more protective. You know, if you could, if one child can get protected in the first generation, that child can protect four in the next generation, and those four can do sixteen. And pretty soon, you have a a healthier population that's able to, you know, speak truth to power. And that's what has that's what has to happen.
3: So you you spoke the R word, right? Resilience, and that word is it's spoken a lot. We have uh, Jennifer who who once has a question about. The, the word resilience and how it's used um, in our society, because she feels that it's, it's often off. It's often used of more of a, like, get yourself together kind of idea or pull yourself up by your bootstraps or the word, she didn't mention this, but grit instead of recognizing it's responsibility of all of us. And so she worries that using this word in the way is almost victim blaming. So how can we continue to have these conversations and be cautious of how these words continue to be hijacked and used in different ways.
1: Well, I'm glad she brought that up because I actually agree with that perspective. I think people, and we wrote about that in the, you know, that one that I think, I can't even remember the book, but um, I think I wrote an introductory essay about resilience about how I don't like to use that word unless I'm being very specific about it. Because I think, that a lot of times people have used that word to protect themselves from the emotional pain of other people. And it's, it's a little bit like saying, oh, they you know, they can be resilient. You know, go do a resilience class. Go do this. But the truth of people that are, have experienced some of these things, it's, it's brutally, brutally painful. And it doesn't go away. You know, when you lose a child in a school shooting, it, how does that go away? It doesn't go away. And you can't resilience somebody into uh, you not having to feel uncomfortable about it. So I think that's the way a lot of people tend to use it. You know, we just need to build resilience into the elementary school thing. So anyway, but, but now resilience is a true capability of a human being, but it's malleable. And, and what malleable means is it's changeable. So you can have an average amount of, capacity to deal with stress. But if you get bombarded with stressor, 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 your cup of resilience is tapped out. And you're just not going to be able to sort of move forward without some compromise in physical, mental, social functioning. Now, if the bombardment of stressors stops, or if there is the presence of some relational connection, people who help build back elements of resilience that can help you. But it's always this balance between, between uh, connectedness and adversity that really determines where you are on that resilience scale. And, and, and it can change. You know, People that demonstrate tremendous resilience in one circumstance, five years later, will just break down at, uh, at another circumstance. And we've seen, I, you, know, you know, Ingrid, you brought up working with the v, in the VA system uh, or knowing about vets. We would see this all the time. People that, that uh, we, I saw this particularly around the 50th anniversary of D-Day. There were vets who had been able to demonstrate, who were in D-Day, uh, who saw horrific stuff, who went back home, connected to family, connected to community, connected to beliefs, meaningful work, and then they retire. All of a sudden, all the people that were around them around work are gone. They have a spouse who passes away. And then along comes, so all of these relational things that help play a role in that, all of a sudden, all of these unpredictable and uncontrollable reminders of D-Day come up because it's all over the press. And we saw a huge spike in people coming into the VA uh, who were that elderly from World War II at the 50th anniversary. And so their capacity to demonstrate resilience was completely worn out. And um, so I think that that's something, again, Matthew and Ingrid, this is, goes back to what, what can we as a community do? We can teach people what resilience is and what it isn't. You know, it, it's, it's something that if you really want resilience in your school, you need to support music. You need to to support drama. You need to support sports. And you need, because those are opportunities for moderate, predictable, controllable stress in context of a relationally supportive group that you belong to. That builds resilience. But don't tell me that you're going to send kids out for seven minutes of recess and we can't afford sports and music is just an add-on. And then say, we're going to make you resilient. That's the kind of bullshit that I am so sick of hearing at school boards because they want to catch up, so we score. You know, you know, whatever, whatever. I better stop. i are getting real in trouble here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that it's it can be frustrating, especially with this push for um, like these, you know, standardized testing grades or these um, arbitrary. Milestones that children have to meet with while actively taking away the things that would make it easier for them so that they can, you know, fall into their natural resilience. And I agree. I definitely have issues with the word resilience aside from its, you know, scientific murkiness, but um, it's just hard to say that individuals should be resilient when they're coming up against systemic issues. Um, uh, listen, Ingrid, longer. telling
1: somebody they should be resilient. Yeah. It's like telling me I should be taller. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I know I should be, but I'm not, okay? <laughs> I, the reality is I don't have the physiology to be two more inches taller. I, it's gone. I'm not, I'm not going to get any taller. Yeah. That's, the, that's how stupid people are about it. Yes. it it's, it's like saying, oh, yeah, you should be able to run a mile in you know, six minutes. Some person out there, just because somebody runs a mile in six minutes, I want you to run a mile in six minutes. Well, how do you get there? You have to train. You have to have lots of practice to get to the point where you can run a mile in six minutes. To be resilient after a school shooting, you have to have lots demonst- of practice before you can demonstrate resilience. I mean, this is what this is why Oprah and I wrote this book. We want people to better understand these issues so that as they think about these concepts and the the implications of this understanding, it will lead to a different understanding about using the language about resilience or a different understanding about you know, saying stuff like, well, I, I never had any slaves. I don't know what's my, you know, all, all of the kind of stuff that we hear out there, it, it, that's sort of these defensive tangential responses uh, will be less frequent if people really understood this stuff.
2: Yes. And even just narrative shifting, you know, even if we, you know, how are our systems resilient? Are they resilient? You know, we can't really have these kind of conversations before we address the systemic barriers. Exactly. So we're we're getting close to time, and I have there are a couple of more questions that have come through, um, but I'm going to kind of summarize kind of these big picture questions. So first, you know, there's a lot of talk around parenting um, what can we do to engage with parents, to educate parents? Um, what is your, um, when it comes to historical trauma and intergenerational transmission around, you know, these systemic issues, what is your take on what would be, um, you know, the best practices when it comes to engaging with parents, not just schools, because there's some people asking about school settings, but, uh, anyone working with children needs to take this two-gen approach. So, um, what are what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think that <clears throat> if you look at how human beings learn things, we, we learn things best in context of story. And I think that we have this big formal education system and it, it does a good job at teaching certain bodies of knowledge to large groups, large numbers of people. So people learn to read and people learn a little bit about literature, a little bit about geography. You know, you learn a few things. Um, But I think the values and a lot of the beliefs and the things that we understand about the world, most of it comes from us watching stories, reading stories, movies, TV shows, that kind of stuff. So I think one of the big tasks that we should have um, and again, I've talked with Oprah about this and some other people. So, you know, I think that this is something that other people thought about is that we need to embed these concepts into our storytelling mechanism in our society. So the storylines about trauma and early development and the importance of early childhood and all kinds of stuff in resilience or non-resilience, historical trauma, they need to be explicitly and, and subtly built into our soap operas and our docudramas and, you know, what we, what we tend to do, the people in power in academics, they wanna make a little documentary, you know, they wanna, or they wanna have a white paper consensus conference. And all of that crap that they produce doesn't reach anybody, doesn't reach anybody. Nobody reads those things. Nobody reads them. All the little expensive four minute video things that we show, they're kind of nice, but, you know, it's like more people watch a rerun of like, you know, Bonanza at four in the morning than have seen our best trauma, you know, documentary. So what we need to do is integrate this content into our storytelling mechanism. So the Hollywood writers need to learn about this stuff. Uh, we need to take the existing stuff that's out there. There's trauma all through every major picture. Every single major movie this year, uh, there, are, there are strands of understanding trauma and development and child rearing and all kinds of stuff in all of that great literature. It's all through Read East of Eden. I mean, a- any great literature has aspects of transgenerational trauma. But somebody who's reading it won't connect it the right way, or, or I shouldn't say the right way, but won't connect with it unless they learn a little bit more about trauma. And so that's part of what our job is, is to educate uh, the educators, educate the screenwriters, educate the the artists who are wanting to tell these stories anyway. All good art is infused with the individual and and the cultural trauma of of the artist. It's it's always there. And so I, I think what we need to do is we need to look back and we need to look at the present And then we need to look forward, and we need to be aspirational. We need to be hopeful, we need to be aspirational, we need to say where we want to be. What kind of world do we want? We're really good at saying what kind of world we don't want. We need to be better at saying, what do we want, what do we want?
0: Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.